and welcome to the second episode of our podcast series on education issues in the Appalachian region of the country. Our conversation today will focus on issues of racial equity in education across Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Howley, Director of Child Welfare and Education at ICF, and joining me today are my colleagues Candace Jones and Jade Irving. Candace's expertise is extensive and includes racial equity, school improvement, youth empowerment, and capacity building. She currently directs a regional comprehensive center, which provides capacity building services to state departments of education. And she previously worked at the U.S. Department of Education and with the D.C. Public Schools. Candace also really understands the Appalachian region, having provided technical assistance services here for years. Jade is currently the program coordinator for a National Science Foundation-funded statewide alliance in West Virginia called the First Two Network that seeks to improve the persistence of rural, first-generation, and other underrepresented college students in their science, technology, engineering, and math majors. Um, those four disciplines together are often referred to as STEM. Jade has been a teacher in English and English as a second language instructor and a retention specialist at West Virginia's historically black university, West Virginia State University. So having lived, taught, and worked in West Virginia, she too has lots of insight into the Appalachian region. So welcome ladies, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Thank you, happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah, so let's begin by addressing um, what might be the first question that listeners would ask um, upon encountering this episode, which is racial equity in Appalachia? Aren't there only white people there? Why would racial equity matter in Appalachia? So how would you respond to those questions, Candace? <laughs> Great question. And, you know, I believe, I believe this conversation is important in every corner of America. And we're seeing that one, the racial makeup of our communities are changing. So even though we may see in Appalachia that there, you know, there's a range from 1% to 10% of diversity in, in communities, depending on where you are, uh, racial, we're, we're seeing that minorities are making up nearly half of the population growth in Appalachia over the past two decades. So it's really important, you know, the community is changing. Um, but even in communities where there's limited diversity, uh, particularly as we're talking about raising up the next generation, I think this conversation is incredibly important uh, because the views that are expressed by by the village, so to speak, that surrounds our, our children and the, the youth of Appalachia will be the views that they take into the world. Um, and one of the things that I found in, in my work in Virginia in particular, we heard a lot uh, from our rural communities that uh, that it was really challenging to retain students in the area. So once mm -hmm. they graduated high school, they were leaving and going off to work in other places and going to school in other places and, and not coming back. Uh, so while there are, you know, initiatives, and maybe that's another podcast topic to talk about, you know, <laughs> retention in the community, but since that's currently not happening, you know, how are we sending our youth out, out to the world, right? What are their views that they're carrying and, and what is the the overarching representation of Appalachia that they are, you know, what do we want them to represent? What are the values that we want them to hold dear um, and and express in the world? I think that's that's really important. 
Yeah, those are huge questions and really foundational to, you know, who we are and where we're going. Uh, what about you, Jade? How would you reply to questions about why racial equity should matter in Appalachia? Well, after living and working here for about seven years now, um, before I got here, one of the first things that I was interested in discovering was the demographics. Um, mm -hmm. Essentially, how many people look like me in this state? Um, at the time, I was very, very blown away by the numbers that I read. And in refreshing myself on this information today, I was still somewhat taken back that 92% of the population here in West Virginia is white, 3.7% um, mm -hmm. are black, 1.7% multiracial, and so on and so, so forth, with very small numbers in terms of um, different ethnicities being represented. So I'm sure you can imagine how I isolating it might feel if you are in the minority here. So for me, it's important that we educate and that we talk about racial equity because we've got to recognize and understand that there are other ethnicities represented here in this state, no matter how infrequently um, white people might uh, encounter or interact with other ethnicities. So in order to be impartial and fair and to contribute to a just society in our state, I think it's very important that we highlight the value of conversations like these, right? Talking about racial equity so that we can bring that to our communities and our schools and our businesses and just every area of our lives here in this state. It's very, very important. 100% mm -hmm. <laughs> agree. <laughs> um, so 2020 has been quite a year. Um, <laughs> Our nation is facing not only a public health crisis, but also a national awakening or reawakening to racial justice. I mean, there have been protests throughout the country in response to George Floyd's death and other high profile cases. And while the Appalachian region is not the most diverse in the country, what shifts have you noticed in terms of awareness of and attitudes towards racial justice issues in the region? Well, I can jump in. This is Candace, and you know, I was really pleased to see that there were some small towns in Appalachia that were holding rallies and speaking out against police brutality, racism, and injustice. And it wasn't just the diverse population that was coming out. It wasn't just the people of color, the black people in the community. Um, it was it was everyone, and it was primarily. Uh, primarily white people that were coming out and saying, you know, enough is enough and um, speaking out against these injustices. So I was really pleased to see that uh, across the country, but specifically in, in Appalachia. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I think I've heard uh, some individuals try to focus on the communities throughout Appalachia that were not supportive or, or the ones that, that were uh, criticizing the the outreach that was happening and the mm -hmm. you know, and and some of the negative aspects of of the ex more extreme individuals that were coming out and kind of capitalizing on on these events that were happening and, and doing some things that, that were not appropriate and not helpful to the cause and and I think mm -hmm. that really takes away from uh, the beauty that we were seeing uh, sprouting up throughout Appalachia, and that was the, mm -hmm. the support for uh, for those who were speaking out against against racism and injustice. Mm -hmm. Would you add anything to that, Jade, from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, 
Everything that Candace said is exactly what I was going to say. Um, um, throughout the tri-state area, there were protests and marches. Um, I actually got the opportunity to, to participate in one of them, and it was largely attended by white people. And I was just very impressed, and I felt very encouraged to see that. Um, but then on the flip side, you've got people who um, refuse to give any voice to these matters because um, they fear some sort of backlash. Um, and oftentimes that is politically, um, that it, it's due to political reasons. So um, there was definitely an outpouring of support among white people. But then you had those people who, um, as Candace said, they kind of twisted it and drew negative attention, which definitely doesn't help the cause. But overall, I was very um, impressed with sort of the shift towards having more of these discussions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. These things, these issues are contested and and deeply but we're at the same time we're seeing we're seeing social change happen um so you know with you i'm really heartened to see some of those efforts i just want to share a few call outs with you i i saw a news article about a uh, a protest march or a black lives matter support march in kentucky in which one of the um white participants held a sign that read no hate in our holler and I just thought that was such a fantastic call out to the region. Yeah. Um, and I've also seen these great stickers that say, y'all means all. <laughs> so, you know, those are, it's nice to see those things kind of uh, pop up around the region. I love that. How do you all think that local governments and workplaces could address racial equity in the region? I mean, do they need to be actively providing training about you know, racial diversity, inclusion, and equity, even though their communities might not be particularly diverse demographically? This is Jade. I'll jump on that one. Um, so I think one of the biggest things um, when you talk about government and workplaces and addressing things like racial inequality, one of the biggest um, factors that contribute to seeing growth in this area is just acknowledging it, right? Just giving a voice to the matter without thinking about any political backlash, without painting someone who speaks on these topics as too liberal or too anything, right? So just giving a voice to the matter. Um, do an evaluation of the, the appointments that are made to the positions in your office or government appointments. What do the numbers say? I mean, use data to inform your hiring practices. And Caitlin, this is something just <laughs> in my work with you that this is something that I've gotten from you, right? What are the data? <laughs> what do the numbers say? So I'm not saying, you know, hey, let's give people jobs because they're minorities. But what I am saying is that we've got to be more intentional about recruiting and retaining employees that represent every demographic that's represented in our state. No matter how few black people, no matter how few Asian people, if there are some then let's let's make sure that they're represented, right? Um, and of course, we should have some training about racial diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, there's a quote by Martin Luther King that I just love. He says, nothing in the world is more dangerous than sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity. Ooh, so yeah. Doing a great disservice to the citizens of our state and to our workplaces by not educating, by not providing training on topics such as diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? So that's sort of my piece on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Candace, would you like to add anything yeah. to that? Jade really, really hit all the points with that <laughs> one. Um, the only other thing I would say is just 
there need to be safe spaces for the conversation. So before yeah. even moving to creating, you know, new policies and just trying to throw out a statement, you know, as an organization, I think having a safe space to have the conversation, even if it's not a diverse workspace, I've seen so many of these start start to happen where they're, we're able to talk about what are we seeing happening in the community? Why are these protests happening? You know, um, what do we think contributed to this? And just giving voice to, to where this is coming from, I think mm -hmm. is so important. I, I also think for, for local governments in particular, creating incentives for diverse businesses to come into the community, creating opportunities to attract talent from from other places, I think is really important mm. as we think about yeah. the pipeline, you know, of um, of workers in the area, and you know, really wanting to contribute to to the workforce and to uh, career opportunities and the expansion uh, and growth in the community. So I think it's it's important from that lens as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and these all these things link to education. Um, as well. So let's talk a little bit more specifically about teaching and learning in the region. Uh, what are some ways that schools in the in Appalachia could help students learn and talk more about racism, racial justice, and how to pursue equity? Well, I've been doing uh, recently uh, some some good work around evaluating bias in instructional materials and. Mm. One of the things that's that's arising in that is the need for for students to, uh, no matter the diversity of the community, to be reading materials and engaging with with materials that that have diverse characters and not just you know racial diversity, but also thinking about you know economic diversity, um, because it's really important for them to. One for all students to see themselves somewhere in the material, but then also to have windows into the experiences of others. And I think that this this will support the conversation happening earlier on, and for them to, for there to just be an appreciation of of all uh, all of the the beautiful beings that make up the mm -hmm. the melting pot, so to speak. That is that is America. Mm -hmm. So exposure alone has value. I think so. Yes. Yeah. What do you think, just, Jade? Yeah, I would just add to that that I feel that teachers should go through some training, right, about DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and racial matters. I think that they should undergo training um, and learn how to really develop lessons and facilitate these discussions. Um, I'm a firm believer that children learn behavior and they model what they learn. And I believe that racism is a learned behavior. So who's to say that a teacher cannot undo or at least challenge some of what a student may have learned at home, but they can't do that if they haven't gotten the tools needed to challenge those ideologies, right? So I've been a teacher in some schools here in the state and I've been the only black teacher in the entire school. And a lot of the conversations in the break room would be astonishing to me because it was simply out of ignorance. So I wonder what impact it would have if our teachers were required to go through some type of training and then to implement what they've gotten from that training in their classroom for the purposes of moving the needle in terms of um, equity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Absolutely. So, I mean, I hear from the two of you, like exposure on one hand for students themselves, but also support for teachers to learn and get comfortable with talking about the issues and, and changing their practices in, in their own classrooms. Yeah, absolutely. So Jade, I understand that the first two network is um, doing some really interesting work around equity, um, particularly in STEM participation in West Virginia, which of course is right there in the middle of Appalachia. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the work of the first two network? Yeah, so the first two network is committed to broadening participation among rural first generation and underrepresented students in STEM. Um, at the core of the network is the idea that diversity, equity, and inclusion are extremely important to broadening participation in STEM. Um, and so to that end, we work in higher education institutions. Uh, we've got partnerships with industry leaders across the state, nonprofit organizations who all share this vision of broadening participation in the STEM field um, with regard to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And Jade, I happen to know a little bit about this project because I also serve as the external evaluator for it. And one of the things that I think is really notable is that um, it serves a really um, a higher uh, percentage of um, Black and African American uh, STEM students than are um, represented in the state in general. So like I think the population is about 3.4% African American or black in the state. And um, I think 12 and a half percent of um, the students the first two network serves are identify as black or African American. So I think that the work that uh, you all are doing is is really incredible. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for pointing that out. Yeah. Um, I'd like to focus on students academic experiences and outcomes now and, and the disparities therein. Um, since the advent of NCLB, which is for our listeners who may not be aware, it's the 2001 reauthorization of the nation's federal education law. Um, states have been required to disaggregate student data comparing various education indicators and outcomes across student subgroups. So, you know, what we discovered is that the disaggregations revealed something we pretty much already knew from research, which is that there are what are called achievement gaps between white and BIPOC, or um, which stands for uh, Black, Indigenous, and People of Color, um, in case it's a, an unfamiliar term to our listeners. So achievement gaps between white and BIPOC students, you know, as well as between students from wealthier families and families of more modest means. Um, anyway, as a result, we've had national conversations over the last 20 years or so about an achievement gap between white and BIPOC students. Um, what are some of the factors that contribute to this gap, um, you know, sort of nationally, but maybe also in the region as well? What, what I have appreciated uh, in recent years, there's been a shift from this conversation about the achievement gap and to talk about the opportunity gap. And I think it's really important to bring this in because educators and, and teachers, some over the years have focused on, on this achievement gap and made it seem as if 
the black students, for example, have are less able to achieve than white students, which is not the case. But right. when we think about the the opportunity gap, meaning, you know, what are the conditions in the community? What are where do they live and what is the socioeconomic status of the community um, that contribute to their opportunities that are available to to black students if we're, you know, focusing on on that in particular. And and as you dig into those details, then you see, you know, how how has the system been set up? And I think that's where systemic racism comes in. And mm -hmm. we have to be able and willing to have that conversation to talk about how this nation was founded, where what kind of systems were set set in place to keep a particular group behind, and that that and how has that contributed to where we are today? So mm -hmm. I, I definitely think um, the opportunity gap has to be a part of this discussion as we look at the dis disaggregated data across subgroups. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the language is important because it better defines the issue. And it's also incredibly important to acknowledge and contend with, you know, the, um, I mean, there, there are, systemic racist practices and and there were also laws <laughs> mm -hmm. you know that that stuff has has a legacy mm -hmm. um that persists to this day in terms of the opportunities and life chances that that BIPOC folk have um Jade how about you is there anything you would add to Candace's analysis that was just a phenomenal analysis, first of all. Um, <laughs> but I would add that um, not having highly qualified teachers in our classrooms plays a very large role in this achievement and opportunity gap. Um, so I've, you know, since I've been here, I've become aware, since I've been here as in West Virginia, I've become aware that there are a lot of teachers in the classroom with no um, teaching certificate. They don't have a degree that's in education um, because there are so many critical needs um, in our schools here. We just kind of fill them up with whoever's willing, mm -hmm. right? And so I think that we really need to move away from um, just putting anybody, so to speak, in the classroom and being more uh, strategic with regard to um, having qualified, highly qualified teachers in these schools so that they can help the students at the level that they need and deserve to be helped at. Um, so one of the things that we're doing in our state is the Underwood Smith Teaching Scholars um, scholarship. Um, and so that is a the most prestigious scholarship we have in the state. And it's centered around um, making sure that our teachers who are coming out of college are mentored by excellent teachers and making sure that they are highly qualified and that they have the experience that they need to equip them to help the students in these um, in our schools here. So um, for me, I've just seen a lot of um, just unqualified teachers in the classroom, and I'm heartened to see us moving away from that. So hopefully we can impact um, the students in terms of that gap in achievement and in opportunities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I have one more question for you. And the more I think about this question, the more impossible it is, but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> so, you know, based on what you've detailed here in response to, to the last question, you know, these are deep and historical and systemic issues as well as having to do with, you know, what people see and hear. Um, 
and are trained for or not trained for. Um, in what ways could schools and districts and, and states in the region improve the ed educational experiences and outcomes for BIPOC students? I mean, we've talked about training for teachers. We've talked about increased exposure to um, BIPOC uh, leaders and politicians and writers and scientists, etc. Um, are there other ways, other steps that school states and uh, districts could take to improve outcomes? Yeah, I think I think it's a combination of of all of the things that that we've talked about and really making the the commitment to to have this be a top priority uh, in education. As as both of you know, there there are a number of competing priorities and. It, this tends to get it, it is a, while it is a priority. I don't believe that we've had the direct conversations that need to happen. And that's the beauty of all that's happened this year as challenging as as it has been. It's forced mm -hmm. us to have some conversations that have have been lurking under the surface for for hundreds of years in this nation. So mm -hmm. so I think being willing to to have the conversation about how we got here. Um, and how deeply ingrained uh, these these systemic uh, challenges are uh, will help to unpack all that needs to be done. And I think that it will be a combination of education, working together with the health agencies, working together with the housing agencies, like all it, it is a an intergovernmental approach mm -hmm. to to the work to really um, have the capacity to to solve this this issue that we have um, mm -hmm. in, in many communities across the country, but specifically mm -hmm. in Appalachia as well. Yeah, it's a systemic problem, so it mm -hmm. requires systemic effort to disrupt it. Yes. Yeah. This is a huge question, Caitlin. I mean, how I know, much I'm sorry. time <laughs> <you> have? <laughs> There's no way. I mean, everything that Candace said, you know, just it's also woven into the culture of our educational system. Um, I mean, even if you go back even to the history of education, right? Who could even get educated? Who was allowed to go to college? Even, you know, looking down the whole scope of how educated you can be. You know, there are just so, so many issues that are embedded in the system that have not been undone. Um, and so, you know, I just, I don't know. Of course, there's no one answer. There are just so many different components that play into why things are the way they are for BIPOC and, you know, under um, people who have a certain socioeconomic status. Um, it's just, it's, there's just so much into it. I can't even, I can't yeah. even get into it because it makes my head spin and my blood pressure builds up. I get heart palpitations. So, it's just a lot. <laughs> Right. Well, I think I think that's the right uh, um, reaction to it, <laughs> to this impossible question. Um, but it's why we do what we do, right? It's why yeah. we're we're committed to this work. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, Jade, one of the things you remind me of is this the idea that learning is dangerous, right? I mean, it it liberates people. It lets them understand their world and question things that are going on around them. Like that's that's some scary stuff for people who, you know, maybe have vested interests. So um, I think you make a really great point. 
Well, I want to thank you both so much for talking with me today. I mean, I, I am hearkening back to um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s quote about the moral arc of the universe bending towards justice. And I think the work that both of you are doing is kind of like nudging that arc, you know, so it, it moves a little faster towards the uh, towards justice. So I'm I'm very grateful for the work that you do and for being willing to share your perspectives with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kate. Thank you. Thank you.